0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode three hundred and forty-six, and I had a conversation with Father Sebastian. Sebastian is a vampire master Fang Smith, author and impresario of the Endless Night Vampire Ball. His story is an adventure around the world. We talked vampire culture, and Rice, the birth of the literary vampire, the importance of LARPs, his saber-toothed children, television programs, movies, music, and more. It was a lot of fun talking to Sebastian. I didn't know a whole lot about the vampire culture and was certainly curious to know its roots and, and how he played a part in it and the importance of the subculture within the culture. Uh, it was it was really a cool conversation. Check out Hey Human podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors in art and music and film. Follow me on social media: Susan Ruthism, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hey Human podcast on Instagram and Facebook find my albums on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. I'm working on a new EP that should be out, hopefully, by the end of the year. Fingers are crossed. We'll see what happens. Uh, Check out my sex and relationship show, Are We There Yet?, that I do with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Amara Edelman. We are giving away Really cool prize every month until we run out of cool prizes. Lovely gifts from Vibratex. If you subscribe on YouTube, uh, you will be entered in that giveaway. It's a, it's a pretty cool deal. Uh, find it on YouTube under youtube.com slash show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts super helpful. If you haven't taken a moment to rate and review, please do so. Uh, We're going on our seventh year. By we, I mean me. I do it all myself. And you know, it's a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. And I would love to hear from you uh, with the rating and review. It's very helpful for the algorithms and to help spread the show to more people. Thanks for listening. Take care of each other. Be well, be love. Yeah, here we go. Father Sebastian, welcome to Hey Human.
1: Howdy doody.
0: Howdy doody. Uh, And shout out to our mutual friend, Scott Benefil. Hello.
1: I see him often (laughs) writing his book in the uh, Bordner's Bar.
0: Yes, absolutely. The best nachos in town, Bordner's Bar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, absolutely. Without a doubt.
0: They're so good. Uh, well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. He and I were hanging out chatting the other day, and he said, Hey, I have something that might be interesting for the show. And I said, Great. And thank you so much for you were very quick on the response, and here you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get into it. Where are you from originally?
1: I'm born in San Diego uh to a military family my dad moved back to new york when i was one year old and i grew up in a very normal family very suburban we we was in new jersey don't tell anybody um and then my parents got divorced when i was 12 and well they separated when i was 12. and i dived into role-playing games and dungeon and dragons and lord of the rings and and everything like that and i fell in love with the vampires and i uh have been on an adventure ever since and it's taken me to 27 countries um these hands have made more fangs than anybody in the world and i've met amazing people so what i do is travel make fangs and throw vampire events
0: did you go into the role-playing games as an escape, just as some place where you feel connection? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And I played Dungeons & Dragons. It started with a board game called Battletech. And then I met a guy who was like a total nerd. And he introduced me like every two months we would switch games. I learned about Shadowrun and, and Vampire the Masquerade, and and uh, which came later. But it got me into the gaming community, which was an incredible tool for expressing your imagination. And I learned vocabulary. I learned how to read and write. Dungeon Dragons taught me how to spell properly. Uh-huh. Um, but as you know, back then, the uh, D&D is kind of like Stranger Things, where if you want to talk to girls, you don't play D&D. And now, today, there's girls ro- ro- rolling, there's Roll Like a Girl for Suicide Girls. Yeah, it's
0: definitely been embraced by everybody, I think.
1: Which is great. And I love the hobby. And I'm great that people are expressing their imaginations in a safe, fun way around a table with dice mm-hmm. and learning math and still with pencils and. And uh little and learning how to paint miniatures and stuff like that. It's it's really cool to see the hobby grow so much.
0: Oh yeah. I have friends that do a live for for the internets. They do a lot from Perception Studios, they do live Dungeons and Dragons and they use felt people puppets. And and they have they have humans and the puppets, everyone's playing. It's fantastic. They go into giant improv scenes. Wow. It's really neat. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm yeah. I'm just I, I just love the hobby of role playing in general and um it's it's really fun. And yeah. I I I dropped out of it for a couple of years because the real vampires were not happy with the role players, but I said fuck it and I got back into the gaming scene.
0: So let's talk a little bit about vampires. You were drawn into that particular lore first?
1: Yeah, I started out with a game called Vampire the Masquerade. I was at a medieval LARP, live-action roleplay, called Xenadria in 1992. And I was playing a big bad lich. I was 17 or 18. I can't remember how old I was. Um, And I had two death knights, and I was, like, totally badass. And I had a staff with a, uh, a skull on it that I could whack people with. And there was this lich hunter this undead hunter i forget her name but she was really cool and she was an actor from the renaissance fair and she goes you need to kill me by noon on saturday because i gotta go to harrisburg pennsylvania to go to this larp called vampire the masquerade and i'm like what is that that sounds great and uh she uh she went off to the game i i stayed behind and played my uh character but um i looked it up and I found this wonderful company called White Wolf, who was creating this role playing game that embraced all the different vampire mythologies and created a vampire genre uh, that it, like Vampire the Masquerade is probably one of the greatest influence, three greatest influences on the modern vampire mythos. And I got hooked. And my girlfriend Dawn and I, her name was Dawn for real. Um, she was a, a fairy, gypsy, witch, and a vampire, werewolf. I mean, she was everything. She just said, "I'll sum it up. I'm just Jewish." <laughs> um, and I was like, "Okay." And she had long black hair, and she wore belly chains, and wore patchouli all the time. And we uh, went to our first vampire LARP in uh, the Bank nightclub in 1992, and it was called Inquisition Games, and I had a blast. Okay. I had the time of my life. It was like, and then at 11 o'clock when the goth club opened in the bank, the kids would go, do, the vampires would go down into the catacombs and we role played and role played and role played our hearts out. But one thing that was weird was um, I had uh 1993, my girlfriend and I uh, Dawn Um, she, she's sadly passed away,
2: uh,
1: in 2002. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah. It's, I just contacted her sister to see how she was doing and it was really nice to catch up, but Dawn and I went and got our fangs made from a fangsmith because I went to my grandfather and I go, grandpa, you're a dentist. Can you make me fangs for Halloween and my prom? And he goes, you're crazy. Okay. So my aunt introduced me to a dental uh, a, a dentist that was really interested in special effects. And I went and got fangs made by a guy named Gregor in Elizabeth, New Jersey, on the 3rd of November, 1993. That was my awakening, my day of reckoning. And Dawn and I both got our fangs, and we went out to the LARP, and we were, like, really loving it. And I remember when I got home, I dropped one of the fangs down the sink. Mm. Her her dad had to unscrew the sink and get it. But we we went to the prom, and um, her health was not very good, so the relationship wasn't really something she could continue with. And I was working in a uh, shoe store in a in Bridgewater Commons mall called a sh- shop called Wild Pair, and there was four metalhead guys with long hair selling stripper shoes and a gay manager named Lou who had a handlebar mustache and we were selling doc Martins and stilettos and thigh high boots and stripper shoes and club kid shoes. So a lot of, a lot of club kids would come into this, into the uh, um, shop to get stuff. And I was wearing my fangs on Halloween in 1994. And this one guy goes, I love your fangs. Where did you get them? And I'm like, uh, the guy retired and he's like, Oh, can you make me a pair? And I had been apprenticing. I had been working as a um, dental technician for a dentist in Bedminster, New Jersey, who was this like really conservative dentist who had a freaky side. And we, uh, he had, every Wednesday I'd go and I'd learn how to like repair dentures and fix dentures and mix acrylics and, and safety and sterilization and stuff like that. And, uh, so I said, sure, uh, I'll make you a pair of fangs, but I'm not ready yet. So I practiced and practiced and practiced. And on Christmas day, 1994, I made my mom, my first pair of fangs. Did she wear them? She wore them. She still has them somewhere. But, um, my mom is my first fang client per se. How did,
0: how did they attach
1: well, they're, they're caps and they're made of dental acrylic and I like subtle ones. Cause like people can't tell that I'm wearing them
0: and they so, just fit on top and, and yeah. essentially, yeah,
1: literally like a, yeah,
0: you just push it in.
1: Yeah. And I make them, I make them so, um, I make them so, uh, so subtle that you got to take two looks to look at them.
0: How did your parents, your family feel
1: about your <laughs> newfound love? <laughs> they thought I was the black sheep of the family, and I was the first son. So it was like football was the way to go. And I was like, you know, um, I'm not really in the football, Dad. I'm in the vampires and werewolves. And uh, so I, I got my claim to fame by making fangs, but that Halloween, that guy that came in with he had a girl under each arm and he was like really really cool and i looked up to him and he was about two years older than me and i was i think i was 20 or 18 at the time no i was 18 at the time and he goes do you have a fax machine and i go yeah and he goes i need to fax my guest list into the limelight and this is the limelight of the movie Party Monster. When Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green played Michael Alec
2: mm-hmm.
1: and stuff. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I
0: have seen it, yeah.
1: This guy was working for Michael Alec. And he, he, he saw my things and he was like, I got to introduce you to these guys that run the limelight. So put your name on the guest list and come in and, after work. So I, I was like, I don't have any clothes. So I went and bought a poet shirt and some leather pants and took some really cool shoes from the shop and I put myself on the guest list and I got there about 11 o'clock and I, this guy named Steve Ramirez met me at the door and showed me the club and introduced me to Peter Gation, the guy with the eye patch, and, um, and a bunch of people that I'm still friends with to this, to this day. And, uh-huh. I, uh, I started running vampire masquerade games in the back rooms, and, I st- and then in 1995, I started making fangs, and I became the official fangsmith of the limelight. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: So you were around during that Alex stuff when it all went down.
1: Yeah, I saw it all happen. How was that? Well, I wasn't in the apartment where they were. I saw the club kids. I knew Angel Mendez, um, and I. Michael Alec has a very significant paranormal connection to some things that I really am not ready to talk about, but I'll be revealing in, the next, in my memoirs coming out next year. Ooh. Yes. It's called The Vampire Sebastian, and it's written by a lovely lady named Heather who has a PhD. Dr. Heather, I call her, and she's a professor at Otis College. So I'm going to tell my story and hopefully make a movie out of it.
0: Fantastic. Well, I got to say, when you were talking about the wild pair, sounds like a great idea for a television show.
1: <laughs> it was fun because there was there was Sean Murphy who was the the Casanova of the group. There's Paul who is a uh, I see Paul still to this day. He was the assistant manager. And then there was a guy named Tommy and it looked like we were all four in a rock band. (laughs) And, uh, Sean was, Sean was always bringing ladies in the back room and I, he would be like, I'll be right back. And he'd grab a girl's hand after, and then they go back and whatever happened, I was wow.
0: (laughs) Whatever happens in wild pair stays in wild (laughs) pair.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) I love it. That's hilarious. What was it about vampires that drew you to them aside from the obvious immortality?
1: Well, what drew me to them is that I was a gamer. And one thing that i really loved about gaming was the costuming. Okay. And what, and, and the things were the centerpiece of that costume that really drew me in. And I played other role-playing games, medieval fantasy, LARPs and stuff like that. But what really, really got me was the fangs could be anybody. Anybody could have fangs. And you could wear a trainer outfit, okay, or you could be in all black. You could go to the gym and wear your fangs, and people would, it would still work. So the vampire, what I love about the vampire is the immense diversity of people that are drawn to that archetype. okay. I have. I, I was in Dallas, Texas a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and I had a bunch of Mexican fans come from Mexico to meet me and get pictures with me, okay, and they were like, they could hardly speak English, but they were loving it. They were like, Father Sebastian, and I'm like, Mexicans, and um, I get to travel, and my fan kit is a little uh, doctor's bag. And I get to travel around and meet amazing people. I, I, I lived in France, Germany, uh, England, and Holland. I've made fangs all over Switzerland, Italy. And I'm, every person I make fangs for is like a family member for me. And I call them saber Haha.
0: <laughs> Love it. Do you keep a, a history, a family history then of everyone that you've ever put fangs? Um, I about? have
1: a list. I have a database, of a mailing list. They're all your my, children. All my children, my dark children.
0: Well, it's kind of funny if you think about it. If a, a vampire, you know, sires other vampires by biting them with their teeth and you're, you're creating
1: vampires with, your, with teeth, it's the same idea. It's yeah. a little different. Well, metaphorically, it can be similar. Yeah. But what, what really took off, what really took off was in 1995, on the 7th of August of that year. I started um, a fan club, a fang club for my fang clients called the Sabretooth Clan. Okay, clan sabretooth, house sabretooth, sabertooth clan, all the same thing. And I I was making fangs for Halloween, and I realized that vampires are not just limited to Halloween. Halloween's when you see them all. And they come out and they take their masks off. They take the masquerade down because they can wear their fangs and go out in public and everything like that. So I tried a whole bunch of business models. And as at the heart of it, I'm a businessman doing what I love. Okay. I'm passionate about making people smile. And I, I do four to eight parties a year, depending on the year. And my goal is to make the people feel amazing when they come and afterwards scream to the universe that they had a great time.
0: And you, in these parties, you go and you fit everyone with the teeth
1: no i make the fangs before the party but what happened was is i i was starting to make i made so many fangs on halloween and i was the first person that i knew that had an email okay what what happened was is i had this email that was um vampire with a y at io.com which was Illuminati online. It was a little hosting company and I would I had my laptop and I would get on the laptop and um dial up on the modem and and post on the bulletin boards custom made fangs in New York's East Village and people would come from around the world and I got a lot of nerds and geeks and the role playing game was really cool but the problem was is that it was a lot of gamers and actors and Honestly, there's so many so many times you can kill the prince. So um, I started attracting clientele from the leather BDSM scene, from the gay scene, people that love vampires that weren't role players, but were lifestyle vampires. Okay. And I met this wonderful Wednesday adams like girl named Sandy. At the Dark Shadows Festival in 1995 at the Marriott Marquis in June of that year. And I made her fangs and a Catholic priest named Neil. Okay. And I made fangs for two Catholic priests in my life.
2: Fascinating.
1: And Sandy swooped me up my little 20-year-old butt. And she was like, you're coming to New Orleans with me. And I'm like, Ann Rice's party? And she's like, I've got two tickets and I need a date and you're cute. (gasps) And Sandy was a, a worked for Roadrunner Records. Okay. And if Sandy, if you're out there, contact me, you changed my life. Thank you. Okay. And she was a publicist, a press agent for Roadrunner Records. And my God, we had an adventure on Halloween weekend, 1995. I was my first year making fangs. Vampire the Masquerade was huge. The lifestyle vampire community was coming together. I met some lifestyle vampires and I met this one guy named Michael. And Michael said, We spell vampire with a Y to differentiate between the role players and the lifestylers. And New York City had a vampire community that wasn't very organized, it wasn't really. Like, they knew about each other, but they weren't really, like, things. And I heard rumors of a vampire club called Club Vampire with a Y that existed from, like, thing, and they had rings and T-shirts. But I never found out where that was. And it was, like, a fantasy of mine to go to it. And I was playing Vampire the Masquerade, and the lifestylers were on another level. Okay. And... The vampire community really took off in 1995 because Anne Rice threw the Memnock ball in New Orleans.
0: By the way, Memnock the Devil, listeners, if you've never read it, it's fantastic.
1: Yes. And I quickly read an uh, interview with the Vampire, Queen, Vampire of the Stat and Queen of the Damned. My mother told me about Tom Cruise losing weight to be a vampire when I was 16 in my kitchen. She was like, and it was just like all the pieces came together. And I got up on that plane, put, I had a velvet coat made by uh, two seamstresses in New York. And I got my little 20 year old butt down to New Orleans. I think I was 19 or 20. Tell me how that party was. I'm so jealous. The Rice Memnock ball. You had to be a member of the fan club or an industry member to be able to get in. And I will tell you, the entrance alone was mind-blowing. So it was Friday night. I got to New Orleans. I met up with Sandy. Okay. Sandy and I hung out in our little Airbnb. And Sandy was like, I'm about six foot tall. Sandy's like five one. So I could put my chin on her head. I got in a uh, a taxi and went down to the Garden District. And at St. Elizabeth's Orphanage, right in front of it, was 5,000 vampires or costume people that loved Anne Rice. And it was about 5 or 6 in the afternoon. It was still daylight out. And everybody was like waiting for the gates to open, and we all had our golden tickets, like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We were like, "Yes, yes, yes!" The Queen herself is hosting the greatest Vampire Ball in history. I consider her a saint for vampires. And my life had become a vampire. My job was making fangs, and and I was rolling Vampire the Masquerade games in the back rooms of Limelight, um, and around the corner came a horse-drawn hearse. And these ushers got off and cleared the way to the to the gate of St. Elizabeth's Orphanage. And they pulled a coffin out and they leaned it against one of the poles. They pulled another coffin out, leaned it against the poles. And then they opened the coffin and Anne Rice comes out. And the crowd goes batshit. Okay, no pun intended. She's waving like the Queen of England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, she's waving like the Queen of England, and she is, like, in her glory. This is Anne Rice at her prime. A year after Interview with the Vampire came out with four A-list actors, okay, 5,000 of her fans going nuts from the fan club, okay, and. It
2: was just mind-blowing.
1: Like, like I was just, like, I wish I had a camera. <laughs> I feel horrible about having But I do remember, she goes, wait a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I have a surprise for you. And she goes to the other coffin, and she opens it up. And out comes Kirsten Dunst. Wow, that's great. The crowd goes nuts. Claudia is there with with Claudia. Because Claudia was based on her uh, five-year-old daughter who passed away in 1972 called Michelle. And Anne Rice, so this is the first time I've seen Anne Rice in the flesh. And she goes up and she sits in a horse-drawn carriage and greets every single person that walks into that ball with Kirsten Dunst. I got to speak with my first celebrities. It was like, I was, I, to this day, am a fan and I never, ever wanted to be Anne Rice's friend or try to be like part of her fan club. I wanted to stay a fan. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, that's what I am. I'm a fan
0: of Anne Rice as well. The Witcher series is amazing. She's and her, her erotica is great. Well, when when the stats started coming from Atlanta, she lost me. Okay. I, so, you mean uh, the interview with the vampire
1: the future ones? The more recent ones.
0: Yeah. I didn't read any of those. Were those written by her? I thought those were written by her, you know, people saying, you know, how like uh,
1: Orson Scott Card's son started writing. No, I don't think Christopher did that. Um, Christopher wrote a book with her. Christopher, from what I can tell, okay, has licensed everything to AMC. And they're making the new TV series. How interesting! Really focusing on the memory of his mother. The Vampire Chronicles for me really are Interview with the Vampire, Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned. Mm -hmm. And that trilogy um, is now being made by AMC as a as a TV show with a new interpretation. Which actually, I actually really enjoy the show. I've I've I was very skeptical at first, but when I saw it, it really touched me. Because what I like about the new show is that they didn't try to be the movie.
0: I'm excited because uh, I'm directing my first short film that I wrote uh, next month, and my costume designer Laura Brody is the is a costume designer for Interview with the Vampires television show. So
1: I'm super. You know Laura? Yeah, I just had tea with her the other day. She's
0: amazing. I'm so excited. Yeah. Tell her. Tell her I said hi. I will. <laughs>
1: I'm gonna text her right after we get off the. Oh, that's the- great! I love a small world. Yeah, she she came to New Orleans and we uh we hung out quite a bit. She's she so great. Whole compass through the whole the whole thing because oh, AMC so- sponsored my Vampire Ball in New Orleans. After you see Anne Rice and Kirsten Dunst in the hearse or the the, the carriage, mm. you walk through Anne Rice's doll collection. Then you go into the venue, and there's three floors. And five ballrooms of endless, endless, endless stuff. One room you go in, there's a treasure chest with uh, with Mardi Gras beads and coins. The next one you go, there's a uh, uh, Victorian dancing. The next, there's a BDSM room. Another room, there's a Victorian violinist and a harpist playing all night. And I I stayed there until sunrise in the courtyard.
2: And... I,
1: that night, I, I feel so bad I didn't have a camera.
0: But in a way, it, it makes it more special because uh, pictures never, they never can be what your
1: being in the moment is. I know, but what's really cool is that that event inspired me to go back to New York and throw the New York Vampire Ball. Now, I knew I was never going to be able to compete with the Memnock Ball. No one in history will be able to compete with the Memnock Ball. Okay, the Memnock Ball of any vampire ball in history was the most magnificent experience anybody could ever hope for. Because of the timing about the movie coming out and the costumes and the freshness of the vampire subculture. The vampire subculture was new. 1995 was the year that the vampire subculture went from a, a womb. It was born in 1995. Okay. It, it, that was the year the masquerade was dropped. The first Halloween where vampires um, were going on Ricky Lake. Okay. And people would say, I'm a vampire and I love it. So. All different expressions and styles of vampirism were represented at the the Memoc Ball. Anne Rice isn't really cool with the lifestyle of vampires. She thinks they're going a little above and beyond the metaphor. But so I went back to New York and I went to Peter Gation, the owner of Limelight. And I said, I want to throw a vampire ball. I have to throw a vampire ball. And he goes, Sebastian? You run your small vampire parties in the back rooms, go to the bank nightclub and start your vampire ball. So I went to the bank, which was on 225 East Houston Street in the East Village. It was an old bank where I played my first vampire LARP at back three years earlier. And I opened the vampire ball Saturday of January 1996. We had a red carpet that went into the club, and there was limos pulling up, and it was just—it was incredible. And it was the first time that the old school vampires of uh, of uh, the old the old coven of the people that were around met the new people, and the new people were the saber because I was the only thing smith in East village, and my business in 1996 exploded. There was a different year in 1996. And I did a second Vampire Bowl at Coney Island High. Um, and then Peter Gation finally rented me Limelight. And I and the last Tuesday of, of uh, July 1996, I ran my biggest event that I've run ever: 2,800 people. Wow. Tuesday night. Five bands, 20 DJs. I had the entire limelight. And that week. Was the disappearance of Susan Walsh, a woman investigating the East Village. She, there's a mystery that's
2: unsolved about her. And guess what? The
1: media came down on me like crazy. They thought you all had something to do with it. Well, they thought the vampire culture did. And I'm, I'm, I'm out and open. I'm like Lestat going, hey, baby, come out, come out wherever you are. Okay. I was
2: open and proud to be a vampire. But
1: the old school of vampires didn't like the media. I was the Lestat in Queen of the Damned going, come out, come out, wherever you are, children of the night. Let's go party and be on TV and, and love it. And the old vampires were like, no. And I was like, let's drop the masquerade. And we did it. And Because of Susan Walsh's disappearance, a woman named Catherine Ramsland came to me, and she proposed to write a book about the disappearance of Susan Walsh. So she wanted to trace her footsteps, and I helped her do it. It Was she at that party? No, no. Walsh was investigating the vampire community, but she was actually doing an article for The Village Voice, and her disappearance brought the media to us. and. So Is I it's
0: unsolved to this day.:
1: It's unsolved to this day. I was at this event in September of 1996,
2: and I met this gentleman,
1: a black guy from Texas who looked like a cat, and he had amazing metal, metal uh, jewelry. And I looked at him and I said, I have an idea for a piece of jewelry. I want this, 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 and this. Can you make it? And he said, Yes, I can. And he made this very piece right here. This came into creation. This is the original. The onk? One. This particular onk. Okay. You can see it's it has fangs for claws, a curved blade like a scimitar. Okay. A crescent moon. And and a stone holder for stones.
0: And to be clear, listeners, he's it's around his neck. He's wearing a necklace. Yes.
1: Sabertooth.com, you can see the onks there. And this is how the vampire culture was unified. There's thousands of these out there. And it was based on the Hunger onk from Wibley Schreiber's book, The Hunger, and the movie, the David Bowie and the Catherine Denevoo movie, um, 1982. Mm-hmm. But I wanted it custom designed, and this is what brought the vampire community together, this symbol, between my commissioning him of saying what I wanted and the, the the stone colors, if you're new, you wear a white stone. If you're middle of the, like not an elder, not a child, okay, you wear a red stone, and then you wear a purple stone for an elder. And we've added other colors. But that was the original concept, so you could tell what someone was an elder or or not, or what we call a kalme, which was a redstone. And to this day, the vampire community in New York City has four courts and over forty five clans.
0: Wow! Explain okay. what a lifestyle vampire is, comparison to a, a large okay. yeah.
1: A role player is someone that takes the identity of a vampire. They make a character like in Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, like you're playing a role-playing game.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, a
1: lifestyler is someone who embraces the vampire archetype in their lifestyle,
0: like drinking blood, like staying up all night.
1: Some of some people drink blood. They're called sanguines. Okay. There's witch vampires called living vampires, and they they see magic vampirism as a magical practice, like a witch would. Okay, then there's psychic vampires, who are, are a whole variety of psychic vampires. There's, there's ones that are good, there's ones that are bad, there's ethical ones, unethical ones, um, and then there's lifestylers. So, lifestyle is the fashion the philosophy, the culture, okay? There are people out there that drink blood and don't identify as vampires. But the ones that do identify as vampires call themselves sanguines.
0: What would be the philosophy?
1: Well, the vampire community is very diverse, okay? There's the Black Veils, the book that I wrote about the vampire community, which was originally called The Scrolls of Elorak, Okay, and I released the complete version this last fall. So you have your three base vampires. You have your lifestylers, sanguines, and psychics. Okay, you can be a lifestyler and not a sanguine or psychic and just want to wear fangs, dress up, and speak like Bella Lugosi. Okay, and there's black swans, which are people that are kind of like Allies of the vampires. They're familiars. They're your mom or dad that are like, oh, that's awesome. You know, mom or dad that's like, oh, look how cute they are. They're wearing fangs and they're taking pictures. Okay. So lifestylers can be sanguine. They can be psychic. They can be hybrid and psychic, sanguine and things. I've done it all. Okay. Then psychic vampires are broken up into like 50 different tribes. Okay, there's your typical psychic vampire, which is not identifying as a vampire, which is that annoying, very difficult person in your life that makes you feel responsible just to feel responsible. Okay, that guilt you on everything. It makes you feel bad, drains your emotional energy. Those are the most common vampires, and they usually don't have any place in the vampire community. Then there is... um. Magical vampires or witch vampires that take energy, and most of the covens that do that in a witchcraft, occult setting, don't drink blood. But there's crossover. So you got your lifestylers, your psychic vampires, your sanguine vampires, and sanguine vampires, believe it or not, are just as diverse as the psychic vampires.
0: How do they come across their blood, do you think?
1: Consensual donors in a BDSM setting. Makes sense. It's all consensual. I've in the twenty five years I've been in the vampire world, not once have I seen a vampire abuse somebody and steal their blood. It's always consent, and it's done in a very BDSM format and or medical format. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of the most sa- f- famous sanguins is a guy named Balthazar in New Orleans, who's a voodoo priest, but he he drinks. He has consensual, adult donors and he does it almost surgically he takes a lancet or a scalpel and he wears gloves and he does everything safety and he stuff you got to be very careful with those things because it can be really dangerous of course you got to deal with STDs you got to deal with bloodborne diseases you've got to do you got to deal with um like biting and saliva okay you've got to deal with um, the psychological connection you have to the person, okay? And in my past, when I had donors, which were usually my girlfriends, and you would have to f- have a fluid bond, go to the doctor and get tested together, okay? And what happened was my when I would feed from one person, it would connect them to me in a deeper way than you would think emotionally and psychically. It was a deeper connection. It was a deep, deep, deep connection. And I would drain that person of their energy because one person isn't enough to feed a vampire. Okay. If you have 10 spoons, a vampire needs 12, you're screwed. It takes time to recuperate. So psychic vampirism Or life force vampirism, which is specifically about life force, not emotion. Because a lot of psychic vampires are about stealing your positive emotions. Okay. But a trained vampire knows how to take life force and gather it without harming someone. Hmm. Okay. And that is something that you start with ambient as when you go into a nightclub or a concert or a shopping mall or a sporting event. And you feel the energy of the crowd? That is ambient. we call ambient gathering. I prefer the term gathering instead of feeding, because it's kind of like, eh. but I gather energy when I go to nightclubs and throw events. And then then there's direct, which is touch, then you can take visual, okay, and then you could go and I can walk down a street and collect energy all
2: I want. And then what I do with that energy is a secret.
1: But what I don't do is I don't drain people too much.
0: Do okay. you watch the, what we do in the shadows?
1: I
2: love that show.
0: I was thinking of Colin, the energy vampire.
2: Yes. Colin, the energy vampire is,
1: was a new addition. Cause I was a fan of the old movie. Yeah. They're excellent. Love that, and the TV show is even even expands upon the movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, but Colin is an example of um, his girlfriend Evie, emotional vampire, is a lot more an example. But I mean, every hundred years we don't turn into a baby,
2: <laughs>
0: right?
1: So, so, what we do in the shadows is a great fun show, and I love it.
0: Absolutely.
1: So have you seen all the seasons? Oh, yeah. I dig it.
0: Yeah, I dig it. You're a vampire
1: fan yourself.
0: (laughs) I dig it. I I find it fascinating. I mean, all the way back, I just actually uh, was on a road trip not too long ago, and I re-listened to Dracula, which was fantastic. I mean, it's such an interesting mythology. Who doesn't, again, as a a 20-something reading the Anne Rice books and really getting sucked into that world, no pun intended. The mysticism of it, the mythology of it. It's fascinating. And then of course Twilight, which I never saw, but I know people were either well, they were either well werewolves or which I I see the you know, the werewolf appeal as well. I love dogs. (laughs) And you know, things like that. But it's just it's also interesting to me. I think any kind of folklorism is rooted in something real. And and that fascinates me too. And the the idea of people becoming so into something, whereas they would go and alter their appearance or, or participate in the sanguine or any of that kind of thing, it's fascinating to me.
1: What I have very, very interesting things is I have people every day,
2: not fantasizing, but practically offering their blood to me. They want to know what it's like to give that. Hmm. And I, 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 I'm not active in that lifestyle right now, but it's really interesting
1: for someone to come to me and go, I'd like to be your donor.
0: I interviewed a BDSM master a long time a few years back, uh, Cauldron Fire, I think was his name. And he specialized in blood. BDSM, blood sport, blood play. And that was really interesting to hear about. Okay. But he wasn't, he didn't consider him.
1: So if he was a vampire, he certainly didn't say so. Yeah, most vampire sanguines aren't really public. Mm. Okay. There's a couple people out there that are like public, um, that are legit, like Lazar. But a lot of the people that's claimed they want to drink blood go on TV just to get their 15 minutes of fame and they don't know what they're doing. Sure. Sure.
0: So I come to a party. What is my experience? What am I, what is the end game? Am I trying to suss out the prince? Am I trying to just enjoy myself with people that are of like mind? What is the, the, well, what's the impetus of me going and what is the purpose of me being there?
1: It depends on the event you're going to. Okay. So we have two basic styles of events. We have a salon and a ball. Okay. This year, we have four gala balls. We have February 19th in LA, okay, which is the event starts at 9 o'clock for VIPs. The first thing you do is you get your costume ready. And you look at the Pinterest page, and you look at our previous photographs from old old events, and you go, say the theme is anti-Valentine's Day. You wear red and black. Okay. And you you go get a dress. You have a dress made, okay? A lot of people have custom-made, tailored stuff or or whatever. And then they come to the event ready to go at 9 o'clock and get in the queue. And then at 9 to 10 is the red carpet, okay? And you get – we have paparazzi, the official paparazzi. You check in, you have paparazzi. And then you go in, and there's a shopping mall downstairs. There's a – um uh, there's two opera boxes where we put our celebrities. Whatever celebrities show up, we pop them up there so they're safe. Um celebrity
0: in in the realm of vampirism or celebrity in the realm of period?
1: The celebrity in the celebrity in the realm of like we last year we had Guillermo from what we do in the shadows. Nice. Okay, he was our master of ceremonies. This year we're gonna announce our master mistress of ceremonies last minute because we want it to be a surprise. And if it happens the way that I want it to, holy crap, it's going to be a coup. I love Guillermo, though.
0: He's so great.
1: Guillermo's good. But we got Guillermo right at the right time because he's blown up. Harvey Gilliam is his name. He is. I'm so happy for him. He has been so successful. He outgrew us and we can't afford him anymore. (laughs) Good for him. That's awesome. we got them right in the right time. Yeah. What you'll see is you'll see a laser light show. You'll see a beautiful, the, the place that we have in in um, Los Angeles is the globe theater on at 740 Broadway. Okay. And you see costumes and I mean, we have the entire horror make monster industry here and the, uh, like L- Laura Brody, you'll see her there. Um, I'm sure my friend Ruth waits goes. You know Ruth too. She's a good friend. Yeah. They're both in
0: my in my rolodex. Yeah. She she's a dear friend. She was on this show, gosh, in the very beginning.
1: Cool. Ruth is Ruth is an amazing woman. I love her to death, and I love her laugh. Her her. Oh, laugh. she yeah. She laughs real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you you come in. You start meeting people, you get a drink. Uh, We prefer, we're going to, we have bloodbath, which is our signature cocktail for the event, which is shambord, cranberry juice, and red wine mixed together, shaken, and served without ice in a wine glass. And vampires are very picky about their bloodbaths, I'll tell you. At 10.30, the MC comes out and greets the crowd. This one, the MC will be Dan Sperry from Masters of Illusion. He's a shock magician. Um, and he's going to do a introduction of the band and I'll, I'll announce it here because by the time this airs, it will be heard. Gene loves Jezebel. No way. Yeah. We just signed the contract today and. That is so badass. Endless night is run by magic, vampire magic. Okay. And. The energy of this event just, it settles right. Like there's a time when the air changes and January 1st is the time that the endless night LA vampire ball takes off because no one cares about anything on on Valentine's day before January 1st, before new year's. Okay. You can't get anybody's attention. So all, all of our magic starts, we organized this entire event in six weeks. I've been offered to go on a lot of TV shows, but most of the time they want me to drink blood. <laughs> I saw
0: you, I saw a clip of you in an underground tunnel system. Oh, the catacombs. Catacombs.
1: Yes. Have you ever seen the movie As Above, So Below? Mm-mm. Go check it out. It's really fun. It's, like, it's kind of like a Blair Witch Project in the catacombs of Paris. But I, actually in 2004, a French guy named Laurent Corot contacted me, and he wanted to do a documentary about me called Vampire's Reality is Stranger Than Fiction. And he went to New York to try to find me and he couldn't find me and I was living in Amsterdam at the time. So we finished the movie together and in 2006, it came out. And what what was unique about New York, okay, is it shows the power of diversity about the vampire's flexibility and its metamorphosis. And I started a business plan, okay, a marketing plan where if I made you fangs and you referred your friend, it would be like a lineage, a family tree, a bloodline.
2: Well, it got a little out of hand. And
1: 45 bloodlines started. Can't keep track of them anymore. Rivalry started happening between these bloodlines. Okay. And then Blade came out, and a bunch of the kids from the inner city instead of going into gangs, form clans of vampires. Okay. And one of these clans rose to the top, and it was called Hidden Shadows. And they have the Legacy Onk with bat wings. And it was run by a martial arts teacher by the name of Xanatos. Okay. And his brother, Jaga. And they had, a, they opened the Vampire Nightclub in Harlem. And I'll tell you, when you see this phenomenon, this family tree, okay, of 400 Black and Hispanic kids in the line wearing black trench coats and fangs and contact lenses, doing Victorian etiquette, okay, and talking to each other like, yes, my dear, it is a pleasure to see you, okay, is one of the most unique things you can experience in this universe. Then you go into the nightclub and you go past the trophy room, okay, where all the martial arts trophies are, into the main room. And when you see these kids, not kids, men and women, dressed in all black, really to the nines, Victorian clothes, big vampire onks, fangs, contacts, going, do hosh me Okay, like to Rammstein and Metallica and and classic goth songs, you know that you've arrived. And for 10 years, Hidden Shadows ran their realm of darkness. And all the vampire clans from Harlem and Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island would go to them. And it was very different from the tunnel and bridge, floofy goth Victorian people. Down in the East Village. And I loved going to Hidden Shadows. It was awesome. Okay. And I remember coming up and I would, I, I was the only white guy there. Okay. And my girlfriend was Puerto Rican. And we, we she looked at, she's like, this is unbelievable. And they all called me grandpa. Okay. Like I would have like big black dudes come up to me and be like, Grandpa, can I have a hug? And we're wearing fangs and a, like an onk with a sword and like everything. And I'm like, of course, Morga. <laughs> and they all had names. And this culture still exists in New York today, the legacy of this culture. And if you look at vampires, reality, stranger, and fiction, you see this culture, this phenomenon, this incredible experience. And to this day... I'm friends with so many of these people.
0: That's awesome. I love that. It's a nice community. Yeah.
1: yeah. Didn't think of vampires as just gothic white kids hanging out, but they That's made their awesome. own realm of darkness. They made. Yeah, I own see own it. I, it. I mean,
0: I think every culture
1: on the planet has
0: some sort of a reference to this type of lore. Every single right. one. So it's not like it's not like something that was born of Anne Rice, even. I mean, it or even of the. Vlad the Impaler, even before
1: that, it was around. I, I've traced the lineage of the mythology, the modern vampire mythology. Would you like me to explain that? Sure. Okay. So there's always been vampires. Lamia, Succubi, Lilith, you know, vampires. Lilith. Culture. <laughs> Lilith gets such a bad rap. But go on. <laughs> well, um, Lilith is very special to me.
0: Me too, but you know she had the wherewithal to be like, screw this and run off, and everyone's like, oh, she must be a demon. She won't listen to what Adams.
1: <laughs> well, the Lilith myth is is a long podcast unto itself, of course, of course. Okay. But she she's in many ways the mother of vampires, the dark mother. A lot of people give her credit as as the mother of of the first vampires.
0: I like to give her credit as the mother of women who don't take any shit.
1: <laughs> well. That's how I think of her. (laughs) Lilith Lilith is a, uh, um, when you're a male child of Lilith, okay, a devotee, you have a very special place amongst women. So, but that's, that's another story. So the vampire mythology started in many places at the same time in different eras, and there's different versions of it and stuff like that. The typical European vampire was a revenant. Okay, which was a vampire who was like a zombie that just drank blood instead of eating brains, it drank blood, and it would be in graveyards. Okay, Lestat and uh, Claudia and uh, Claudia and uh, Louis met one in interview with the vampire that was edited out, but an in interview with the vampire when they went to Europe to find the other vampires, they um, they found. A revenant. Okay. And until they went to Paris and met Santiago and a long story interview with the member. So, where it really started was Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, and John Paladori were all in Swiss in Geneva writing ghost stories, telling spooky stories. That's
0: right, where Frankenstein
1: came from. Correct. Prometheus. And out of that, Victorian, early Victorian theater, drama, Penny Dreadful style writings came a short story called The Vampire with a Y, which had the first conscious vampire noble dilettante named Lord Rutherford, which was based on Lord Byron. And it was a revenge story, okay, where John Paladori credited the story to Lord Byron and Lord Byron got really upset and went after him. And it was that they were, they had a love affair, and lord Byron John Pdori was not very um was not a noble, so he he actually um
2: uh wrote the short story as a revenge piece
1: against you know Lord Byron for blowing him off. but Lord Rutherman was the first dilettante vampire that was a human. Okay, then you went to Carmela the Vampire, um, Varney the Vampire, and then at the end of the 1900s,
2: you had Dracula. 1896. And Dracula changed the game
1: and made vampires famous. And that's what's when vampire with a Y was switched to vampire with an I. Great book, by the way. Yes. Very different from the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, for sure, absolutely. But from there, the vampire hit its first major marker and became the modern Western mythology of a vampire. Vampires are immortal; they can't go out in the day. They like all the points that we know as a vampire were really hit in Dracula. Okay, but Dracula was cursed by God, and then Anne Rice comes along after all these Dracula movies and Dracula's the main vampire, the 1922 movie Nosferatu was the first time that vampires were affected by sunlight and killed by sunlight. Dracula could go out in the day, but he would age. Okay. And he wouldn't have his powers.
0: I heard a great thing the other day. Uh, it was the reason why, uh, The whole thing around vampires not being able to see their reflection back in the day was that mirrors were lined in the back with silver. So that's why. And now that they're not, vampires have no problem seeing their reflection. I thought that's
2: such a great.
1: I love that. So Anne Rice
2: comes along and changes the game again. And she
1: makes atheist vampires. OK, she each vampire has their own relationship with faith. Well, doesn't give a shit. He's embracing being a vampire and he loves it. And he revels in it. Claudia is trapped in a five year old's body and is a doll. And Louis hates himself for being a murderer. So and Rice then in later books had the vampire. Um, she had the vampire covens where vampires were Satanists. But as Armand said, he hasn't seen any sign of the devil or a god. And then Anne Rice gets all religious later. Yeah, sure. But Anne Rice did something very important. She connected ancient Egypt to vampires. Because there's no vampire mythology for real in ancient Egypt. There's, there's cause spirits of family members that you got to feed them until they, they pass on to the other side that will come back and feed on you. But that's the most they have in vampire The
0: Vampire Round, so interesting. Did you see uh, What Lovers Left Alive?
1: Yes, I loved that.
0: I did too. I fell so in love with that movie. I had to hunt down the soundtrack of the the Beirut band that's disbanded, Soap Kills, and I had to buy their record. I found it, some obscure place and, and got it. It's such a great, the soundtrack to that movie is so beautiful.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. That movie was one of the top 10 Vampire Films that I've seen.
0: I loved it. It's so smart there. If you were not paying attention, there were great lines going by great, great references to literature. So well done. And they made an appearance in, uh,
1: what we do in the shadows. Tilda Swanson. (laughs) Yeah. She's so great. Anyway. So Anne Rice comes along and changes the game again. She makes diversity amongst vampires and homoerotic vampirism. Sure. Okay, and that vampires are beautiful angelic beings that are devoted to um, that are devoted to, to vampires. To they, they hunt with their beauty, they seduce with their beauty. Then in nineteen ninety one, there was a guy named Mark Ronhagen who wrote Anne Rice that would make a role playing game called The "Interview with the Vampire," and she never got back to him. So he created his own game, and he called it Vampire: The Masquerade. And it came out in 1991. And there's a documentary on YouTube, and uh, part of on YouTube, but it's on. It's called World of Darkness. And it was the first game where girls would want to play.
2: Okay, Vampire: The Masquerade contributed. A bunch of things to the vampire mythos. Mm-hmm. First,
1: it contributed clans of vampires. Okay, different clans of vampires. You have the Torador, which are the artists, and the Tremir, which are the sorcerers, and the Venture, who are the nobles and dilettantes, and the Gangrel, which are the the hippie vampires, and all these different genres of vampires came together in one mythology in one universe. Mm. And this is where the story of Cain becoming the first vampire as a curse from God comes from. It was created for the plotline of this universe that the story of the game was in. Hmm. And the concept of princes and vampire courts and the uh, dominions and, and the vampire lords in the in Kanu. Every vampire had a place in interview with the vampire. And this game was transferred really well into a LARP, live action role play.
0: Which is where you discovered it. And I did. Yeah. And, and I mean, the ideas of, of vampiric creatures have been around for the sirens and the, you know, the, the drinking of the blood from various creepy crawlies of the night. You know, the fairies that were the scary fairies. The, oh, Midnight Mass. Great example of a fabulous Oh,
1: yeah, that was really cool. Loved it. Culturally, the vampire of the masquerade was, there was a law that vampires had to follow that you weren't allowed to reveal yourself to someone who wasn't a vampire. Okay, and there was other traditions, but the masquerade really set the foundations for a vampire subculture to be born.
0: So Interesting. So your next event is the one here in in February in L.A. Yes. Yes. But how can people find you, learn more about you and what you do? And
1: if they want to get fangs. They want to get fangs. They want to find out. So basically my job is to people the world of vampires by making fangs and throwing gatherings for them. Okay. We have the salons, which are more intimate. Okay. That are like um, bordellos. Cool. It's an opium den meets a burlesque show meets a vampire lounge. And I'll invite you privately to one. Thank you. Okay. It's coming up soon. And then there's the vampire ball, which is our gala event, which happens this year in uh, Los Angeles at the Globe Theater on the 19th of February, the 20th of May in Tampa, Florida. Believe it or not, Tampa's got an incredible vampire culture. I believe it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then Salem on September 9th at the Hawthorne Hotel. Cool. And the, final, the grand finale of the year, the House of Blues on October 28th. Is the Salem, Massachusetts or Salem, Oregon? Salem, Massachusetts. I figured. Salem, Oregon is too conservative for us. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you can find it all at Endless Night, not Endless Nights, EndlessNight.com.
0: Great. This has been really interesting, Father Sebastian. Thank you.
1: Well, I hope I hope you come out and visit us sometime.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'm definitely would love to come to one of the salons and and check that out. I think that would be so interesting to to see.
1: Every Wednesday night from ten to 20, to twelve to the witching hour, we have a vampire lounge at downtime at Bordner's. Excuse me, Bordner's. Which oh, in the back in that. We have it on stage, and they they make the stage a vampire lounge for us. And all the vampires from the Los Angeles gather there every Wednesday.
0: Oh, that's fun! But it's not super hypey loud music or anything. It's more like a social club. It's you can speak and talk, and you can okay, yeah, stuff like that. If you ever like to come visit us, you're invited. You know, I love me some boarders. Best martini. Shout out Keenan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love Keenan. He's our vampire bartender. He's, I love Keenan. He's the best. <laughs> thank you so much Sebastian I really appreciate it adieu my vampire
0: friends thank you for listening everybody bye (laughs) rate, review and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts thanks, bye